What a poignant song, isn't it? Jan leaned over to me and said, well, so true. I, I've been there. I've been there. How many of you have been there? Yeah, God, uh, I don't know what you're doing. But your will be done. Your will be done. And Jesus, today as we gather, that's our prayer. Your will would be done in our time. May the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. February 13th, just this last week, flight number 5763 took off from the Orange County Airport on its way to Seattle. Well, it didn't quite make it there because over the high Sierras, it hit what you might refer to as a little bit of turbulence. One of the passengers on the plane reported that along with the flight attendant, the drink cart hit the ceiling of the aircraft. That the plane, another passenger said that the plane did not one but two nosedives, sort of 90 degrees down. Okay, now let's just take a moment. I know you're strapped in right now. But just imagine being at 34,000 feet cruising altitude and having your plane that's sailing through the air immediately 90 degrees nosedive. And the Flight attendant next to you in the air, five people were injured, they had to land in Reno, didn't make it to Seattle, because five people had to be hospitalized. Now, if you've ever been in a situation of turbulence, either in an airplane or in life, you know that you don't just have thoughts in your head that affect the way that you interact with that situation. Your whole body gets into it, doesn't it? Like if you were to take your pulse, you would, your pulse would be elevated, would it not? Your palms might be a little bit what? Sweaty. Yeah. You might be yelling things uncontrollably. My parents were in a turbulent situation in an aircraft and somebody grabbed the hands of the people next to them and started praying the Lord's Prayer, right? Just like came out of them. Yeah, we, we are what we'd like to call holistic beings, our bodies get into it when we're in situations like that, don't we? And it may not just be extreme situations like an aircraft that might crash in the high Sierras. I mean, our body gets into it also when maybe even walking through these doors on a Sunday morning, we have a little bit of anxiety and our heart starts to beat quicker, doesn't it? Or maybe you know that you have to have a conversation with somebody and you've got to pick up the phone and call them instead of just texting them, you know? And your, your hand shakes a little bit, doesn't it? Or maybe you're at work and you just sense this invitation from God. That person needs to know about the hope that you have in Jesus. And you start to sit on your hands a little bit maybe, or you start to get a little bit distraught. But it doesn't just happen in your head, does it? It happens in your body. <laughs> or maybe you get a, a phone call from the doctor. And the situation isn't what you thought it would be, the, not the news you hoped you'd hear. See, I, I think sometimes in circles of Christians, we want to minimize the role that our feelings and our emotions play. But the reality is we are feeling beings, every single one of us. We, we have 
emotions. And there are emotions attached, too, to what God is doing in our life. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in a series where we're talking about God's will, um, last week we talked about what's in our heart, our desires, what we want. But today I want to pivot a little bit and say, well, what happens when God does something we don't like? And what happens when God does something we don't want? And even our body starts to go, I don't want this. And I'm not choosing this. Like, what do we do then? I was reminded of the Apostle Paul. He's um, heading back to Jerusalem after his missionary journey. He, he knows that he's heading towards probably what will be his death. And there are people, good-meaning, well-intentioned followers of Jesus in Caesarea, and they grab him and listen to what they say to him in Acts chapter 29, starting in verse 13. Or, um, they say, um, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be enchained you're going to be enslaved, and this isn't going to end well to you. And here's what Paul says back to them, verse 13. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. It's easy for me to read passages like this and take the emotion out of it. Paul is surrounded by people that he loves. And them saying, don't go, please don't go. And, and he says, why, why, are you, why are you breaking my heart? Like, just, just let me go. I know I'm going to my death. The Spirit of Jesus told me that too. Read it, that's what he says. So how do we handle when God has us walking down a path that we wouldn't choose and we don't like? Because let's be honest, that's life sometimes, isn't it? There's a number of things that would happen in our life, and we go, God, in your, if, your, if your world was perfect like your heaven is, this wouldn't be the case right now. Death wouldn't be the case. Sorrow wouldn't be the case. Pain wouldn't be the case. But that's not the world that we live in. We live in a world where we're often taken to places. And we go, I don't want this. And I wouldn't choose this. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of church being a place you have to pretend you want things you don't. I'm, I'm tired of church being a place where we have to pretend we're not afraid because we're not, we know we're not supposed to be afraid. But what happens when you're afraid? Well, what do you do then? If you have your Bible, I'd invite you open with me to Matthew chapter 26. Because I, I think what we want to do this morning, not I think, what we want to do this morning is take our cue from from Jesus, which is always a great place to start, is it not? If we're going to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus, let's look at what Jesus did with these feelings of, I don't like this, and these emotions that started to rise inside of him. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. You there? Good. Then Jesus went with them, with his disciples. He's just gotten done with um, the Passover meal that he had with his disciples. This is the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed and taken to appear before the authorities. It says this, and Jesus went with them, with his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful, even to death. 
Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for a second time, he went away and he prayed. My father... If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for a third time, saying the same thing, the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. If you were to go back and you were to study this text, what you'd see front and center are three emotions that Jesus wears on his sleeve. The first is sorrow. Sorrowful even to the point of death, the text says. Um, It's this picture in the original language of being just engulfed in grief, like a a tsunami that just washes over him of despair. Second word, troubled. If you go and look in the original language in the Greek, it's this word that means like anxious. (laughs) Like you could imagine Jesus in the garden like bouncing his knee a little bit. (laughs) Maybe biting his bottom lip. I mean, that's not the picture we have of our Messiah, is it? He goes, I'm troubled, troubled. I'm, I'm stressed. This word isn't in there directly, but I think we can get it pretty easily when we read through the scriptures. Um, I, I think he's frustrated with his disciples. I mean, he's like, you guys, come on. You can't stay awake with me one hour? No, no, here, let's not be too hard on the disciples. I mean, grief is hard, isn't it? Sorrow's hard. It, it, sometimes it's, it's easier to sleep through it than it is to engage it. And that's not a knock on people who need to sleep a lot in seasons of grief. That's just how we deal with it. And so I get it. I probably would have fallen asleep too. Um, let's be honest, you would probably have too. He's sorrowful, he's troubled. He's frustrated. What does he do with his emotions? It's interesting. If you've been around church at all, my guess is you've probably seen at some point this really convenient train that tells you what to do with your emotions. Here's what it says. The front of the train is fact. Middle of the train, faith. The caboose is your feeling. And, and oftentimes, like, we'll be in church and we'll go, well, that's right. That's how it should be. Well, maybe, but is that the way it actually is? That's just a simple question. Is that the way it actually is? Or is life a little bit more complicated than that? Are there seasons where emotion is out front and the pain is so thick and the hurt is so prevalent and instead of feeling like, well, I'm going to make this decision based on fact and faith and then feeling, I think we feel a little bit more like, no, I'm trapped in a glass case of emotion. 
right? Will Ferrell, anchorman, Baxter has just got a, gotten punted, thank you very much, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's not quite as simple as we'd like to make it out to be, is it? And it's interesting, in the garden, and the night that Jesus is betrayed, as he's, as he's praying, yes, yeah, certainly he knows the facts, and certainly he has faith, but his feelings aren't something that are just lagging behind as though there's some inhumane attachment to his journey to the cross. They're right out front. They're right out front. There's been a number of heresies that have risen up in the church over the years. One was in the second century. It was called docetism. Another in the fourth century called Apollinarianism. And both of these heresies had at their core this lie, Jesus was less than human. <laughs> Lean in for a moment. Because it's a, it's a lie and it's actually the exact opposite of the truth. Jesus wasn't less than human. Jesus wasn't the least human person to ever live. Jesus was actually the most human person to ever live. And our journey as followers of Jesus is not to become less human, it's actually to become more human. And Christian spirituality is grounded in the full range of our humanity, which includes our emotions. What, what is an emotion? Well, without getting too scientific, and, and um, I wouldn't even have the ability to do that if I wanted to. <laughs> without getting too scientific, here's what an emotion is. An emotion is a thought that we have in our mind that's linked to a sensation. And so we have this thought that's linked to a sensation that often elicits three things. It triggers something inside of us, so that we respond to it, or we have an experience, and then we have a response. So, when I get the phone call, the news isn't good. My mind has a thought, my mind does something with that, that elicits some sort of trigger inside of me. I experience that thought. I don't, I don't necessarily dis detach myself from it. I, I'm fully in it, and I have a response to it. That's, that's an emotion. So to say that emotions are just sort of at the back, they're, they're just the caboose, we're far more integrated than we often give ourselves credit for. But emotions can be uncomfortable, can't they? We have to do something with them. And here's what we often do with our emotions. Four things, okay? Four things. And I'd like to propose to you after this that there is a better way. It doesn't start with D, but we're going to get to it. So... We can be directed by our emotions. So we just, we just, they're at the front and we just follow them. Have you ever been around somebody in adolescence? Sometimes they're directed by their emotions. Now, we're intended, that's not a knock on anybody in adolescence, just your brain is right there. That's, that's part of um, the development of your frontal lobe. Okay, so, but um, eventually we're supposed to grow out of that. So we're not just directed by our emotions. Second, we have a tendency to detach. And this would be like an Eastern philosophy and Eastern spirituality. The thought at the core of Eastern spirituality is often um, every, every pain that we experience in life is a result of a desire unmet. So if we can get rid of our desires, then we can get rid of our pain. 
So push it away. Push it away. Secularism's response is we just distract ourselves. Like, have you ever wondered why the entertainment industry is so huge? We need to do something with what's going on inside of us, even in our physical body. And so let's see another movie. Let's um, binge another show on Netflix. Let's go out to a really nice dinner. Let's, let's try to forget about it. Or here's what we're really good at in Christian circles. Let's displace. Okay? All things work together for good. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God is in the process of renewing and restoring all things. It's all going to turn out okay. Just keep moving forward. Put one foot in front of the other. Get the facts out there. Right? Is all that stuff true? It's all true. And it's all really, really helpful in its season. But if we try to go there too soon, we actually start to circumvent the work that God actually wants to do in our life. And see, here's the truth of the matter. Here's what you see with Jesus in the garden, is that we don't discover God's will by ignoring our feelings, but rather by engaging them healthily. Because our journey as followers of Jesus, our journey as spiritual beings, is not different than our journey as human beings. They are intricately intertwined. As Pete Scazzaro I think so brilliantly put in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he said, it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remain, remaining emotionally immature. If you don't take pictures of the slides, this might be one you just go, I, I just should, I, we need to take a picture of that. that. That is worth holding on to. We do not grow beyond our emotional maturity. If you found yourself sort of bumping up a, a, against a glass ceiling in your spiritual growth, may I suggest to you that you have some work to do in this area. So what's the work that we would do? Well, let, let's just look at Jesus. Let's let him be our teacher. Let's let him be our guide. Look at what he does. Matthew chapter 26, verse 38. He says, and then he said to them, my, my soul is sorrowful, even to the point of death. What does he do? He steps back. He probably takes a deep breath. And my guess is he asks this really important question. What's going on inside of me? What's that feeling? What do I, what do I call that? Sorrow. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus has emotion. All throughout the scripture, we see God being an emotional being. Exodus chapter 20, it says God is jealous for you. Jeremiah chapter 30, it says that God has anger. Jeremiah 31, it says that God feels love. Hosea chapter 11, it says that God feels compassion. John chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, sorry. Um, Jesus is full of joy. Wouldn't you love to see somebody do a painting of that picture? Jesus brimming with joy. He's like, <laughs> no, 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 no. So, so the platonic God, 
is the unmoved, stoic, unmoved mover. The God of the Bible is distinctly emotional. He's in it. He cares. I don't know, I don't know. Like like many followers of Jesus, I picked up somewhere along the way that almost all feelings are unreliable and that they can't be trusted. I think most followers of Jesus have this conviction that I don't know where we picked it up, but that we don't have permission to feel or to express our emotion. They're just in the back of the caboose and they need to stay there. But when we, hear me, like lean in for a moment, when we minimize our emotions and our feelings, we actually create a wall between ourselves and God and others. And you know this, you know this, if you're, if you're in a marriage or in a friendship with somebody who has a hard time expressing the way that they feel, it can feel cold, can it? Why would we think that's what God would want for us? St. Augustine, who may not strike you as a sort of in-touch-with-his-emotion kind of guy, said this. <laughs> How can you draw close to God when you are far from yourself? He says, grant, Lord, that I might know myself, that I might also know thee. Can I invite you as we talk about discerning God's will, and there may be seasons where he leads us into things that we would not choose, that we name our emotion. It's what Jesus does. We name it. You know, this is what's going on. This is that, 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 that sense that I have inside of me. Um, when we were in our daily devotional writing team meeting a few weeks ago talking about this passage, um, our worship pastor, and I asked him if I could say this because um, he wasn't here, isn't here today, said to me, it wasn't, up until, it wasn't until just about a few years ago that I realized I had more than two emotions, happy and sad. And I thought, well, yeah, that, that, that's for most of us, isn't it? Happy Sad, there's a number of people doing research right now on our emotional spectrum, but Brene Brown came out with a list recently of core emotions that we probably all have felt these on some level. Love, belonging, joy, gratitude, vulnerability, empathy, excited, happy, surprised, curious. And then some we may not like quite as much, shame, guilt, humiliation, embarrassment, fear, scared overwhelmed, sad, hurt, disappointed, frustrated, jealous, worried, anxious, judgmental, disgust, lonely, blame, grief, regret. Dan Allender and Tremper Longman, in a book that they wrote, said ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. But listening to our emotions ushers us into reality, and reality is where we meet God. I would say this, reality is actually the only place you meet God. And there is great power in naming your emotion. And when I say naming your emotion, what I, what, I, what I mean is an invitation to sort of step back from what's going on inside of you, even on a biological level, and to go, okay, so I'm anxious. But here's what I wouldn't do right away. I wouldn't say, I'm anxious, and I shouldn't be anxious. What does that do? It actually makes you more anxious. Try it sometime. I'm anxious and I shouldn't be anxious. And now I'm anxious about being anxious in addition to what I was anxious about in the first place. Sort of like trying to get patience by being more patient. Good luck. So if we just name it, if we go we'll step back from it and go, well, I'm anxious. So that's there. 
Jesus, what do you want me to do with that? What do you have to say about that? You know, ironically, there, there's, there's massive power in naming our emotions. Ironically, there's more power in not naming them, but it's not the kind of power that you want. It's the control over you that just seems to steer and guide your life. Like, have you ever gotten really angry about something really small and wondered, where in the world did that come from? And my hope is you had the, um, the, the courage to step back and go, something's not all right in me. Here's what my guess is. My guess is that you were, um, remember those like splash pad water parks where the water shoots out, right? My guess is that you were holding um, the hole of one emotion like this, right? And you're going, I'm not, I'm not going to feel that. I'm not going to go there. And eventually, what did it start to do? Squirt out in other places, you're welcome to being human. We always do something with our emotions. Whether we displace or distract, or let them direct us, we, we always do something with our emotions. And true spirituality, okay, lean in, true spirituality is engagement with ourselves, with God, with his world, not as we wish it were, but as it actually is. And so we have the boldness and the courage to name what's going on on the inside. And then here's what Jesus says next. My soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little bit farther, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Okay, let's stop there. Does Jesus know the journey he's on? Yeah, I mean, he's already told his disciples a number of times, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm about to die. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> we thought you were the Messiah. So does Jesus know the journey he's on? Yeah, and, and yet he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What's he doing? Well, I've, I've thought a lot about that this week, and what I don't think Jesus is doing is saying, I'm out. I'm out, on, I, I'm out on the mission. What he is saying is, I'm so committed to the mission, but if you are taking suggestions for the methodology, <laughs> may I suggest the cross may not be the most pleasant way, Right? So he's saying to his heavenly father, I don't want to control the situation, but if you're open to influence, if you're open to suggestions, I've got a few. And he goes to his father and he really simply, he presents his request. That's what he does. So let me ask you a few questions. Does God hear our requests? Yeah. I know you hear me. I know you see me. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And you're really grateful Molly saying that and not me. <laughs> Does he answer? Does he answer? M let me ask it this way. Does, does prayer change things? I, I was reminded of this scene from Shadowlands. I'm going to show you just a 30 second clip of it. It's a uh, um, uh, depiction of C.S. Lewis's life 
um, Anthony Hopkins, who plays C.S. Lewis in this film, um, his wife, Joy, has just found out that she's going into remission, and his friends are asking him about prayer. Jack, what news? Uh, good news, I think, Harry. Yes, good news. Very glad, Jack. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you. Christopher can scoff, but I know how hard you've been praying. Huh? Now God is answering your prayer. That's not why I pray, Harry. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because, I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God, it changes me. Sounds really good. Doesn't change God, it changes me. Is that what the Bible says? Like, like I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan. Read everything that I can get my hands on C.S. Lewis. Does the Bible say that prayer changes us, not God? Or maybe that there's more going on than that. Well, let me just invite you to a few texts. Um, you, you've probably prayed this during an election at some point. Um, it's Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and what? Pray. Pray. Well, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Did you know that there are more if-then statements attached to prayer in the Bible than to any other thing? Any other thing. Try this one on for size. Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel. This is an angel speaking to him. From the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. I have come because of your words. Wait, what? Like an angel is released to come to Daniel's aid. Catch this. The Bible says it really, really clearly. Because of your what? Words. James chapter 5, verse 16. When you come and, and to the elders and we anoint you and pray over you, we'll, 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 we will pray this verse over you. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. In the Greek, it's literally the, the energized or the enignero prayer has great enignero. There's this play on words going on. The energized prayer has great energy. I don't know if prayer changes God, but it certainly changes things. Changes our world. Ian e. Bounds said it like this, a great author who wrote a lot on prayer says, God shapes the world through prayer. Now here's the deal, okay. Do I understand that dynamic exactly? No. Anybody that tells you they do, run. <laughs> we want a one-to-one -one relationship like we do with a diet. If I do this, then I'll lose a little bit of weight. I'll, if I work this exercise plan, I'll get stronger. I mean, we want prayer to work like that, and, and it just simply doesn't. But please hear me. When you read through the scriptures, what you're going to find is that God in his sovereignty has chosen to respond to the prayers of his people. Your prayers matter. 
Daryl, when you guys gather every single Wednesday night and pray, 6.30, Watchmen prayer team prays, it matters. It matters. And does it change you? Oh, absolutely. Anybody who's spent any amount of time praying knows it changes you. I'm just saying that's not all it changes. I'm saying the scriptures say that's not all it changes. No, God's not the static, unmoved mover. That's Plato's God. That's not the God of the scriptures. So, man, this week, may, may your, one of your practices might be, maybe just write in that box, pray. <laughs> pray. pray. If, you, if you haven't spent any time praying, maybe you just start with five minutes in the morning. Pray a psalm. Pray any of the psalms. They give language to the full spectrum of human emotion. It's one of the reasons they're there. Yeah we, yeah, we know from the scriptures that prayer does something. But we also know that there are times when prayer doesn't seem to do anything like, like, like this instance with Jesus. Or at least not what we want it to. And there's this caveat in Jesus' prayer. And I've, I've often um, thought this caveat is sort of a cop-out, right? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Have you ever been in Christian circles where people are like, don't pray that? That's a show of non-faith, Okay, a few nods, yeah. Like, if you pray, your will be done. It's just saying you don't have faith for him to do what you actually asked him to do. Now, here's a question. Here's a question. If you knew God was going to answer every single one of the prayers that you prayed with an affirmative, think about it before you answer, would you pray more or less? How many of you have a, have, have a list of prayers you're grateful God didn't answer? Yeah, most of them have female names attached to mine from my, my teens, right? Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. Like, we don't have the full picture. Um, Nancy Lee DeMoss said it like this. She said, God's will is what we'd pray if we knew all that God knows. <laughs> it's what we'd ask for. Love this. Um, Karl Bart called this Nevertheless, he said, this is the defiant nevertheless, where we say to God, all right, here's, how, here's, here's what's going on on the inside. I'm going to name it. And in naming it, I'm going to ask you what you want me to do with it. But I'm going to present my request. If you're, if you're open to suggestions, here's what I'd love to see. <laughs> but ultimately, ultimately, God, I'm going I'm to choose your kingdom. This is, this is Jesus' prayer that he taught his disciples to pray that we said this morning, isn't it? Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we need to pray that God's will would be done, that his kingdom would come, because there are places where if God's will is that we forgive our enemies, if God's will is that we love those unlike us, if God's will is that we release our anger and release our lust, there's, there's moments where God's explicit will is not being done in our lives and in our world. So Jesus says, well, pray for it, because prayer matters. It positions you to receive from God, and it makes ripple effects in the world that you will never be fully aware of. Yeah. 
But please hear me on this. Please hear me on this. Your, your will be done. You'll often hear people say things like, God's will is the safest place to be. Just don't tell that to Jesus. Because for him it was a cross. God's will. No, it's not the safest place to be. But it's the most significant place to be. It's the most beautiful place to be. It's the, it's the best place to be. To say to God, God, I, I'm choosing your kingdom. I mean, you do know that the entry into the Christian life is an invitation to take up your cross, right? To, t- to take up your cross, to, to die to yourself. Um, here, here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the more miserable you are, the more happy God is. It doesn't mean the more miserable you are, the more in God's will you are. It doesn't mean that you should disregard your personhood, your unique gifting, your wiring, who God has made you to be. And it doesn't mean that the godly good desires that you have should be completely ignored and should be completely put off. It actually means just the opposite. Jesus goes on to say, after he says, "Um, follow me, pick up your cross, follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Their life will be healed. They'll become more fully alive as they die to the kingdom of self and live to the kingdom of God. Here's the the ethos of the kingdom of self. It's ruled by self-interest, by grasping, by achievement, by effort, by independence, by holding, by being willful, clenched fists, closed hearts, hard and brittle, and just begrudging determination. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is ruled by love, by releasing, by gift, by consent, by interdependence, by releasing, by willingness, by open hands and soft heart, malleable and transformation before God. I hope you're asking the question, In the battle internally, even an emotional battle that often rages, how in the world do I choose the kingdom of God over the kingdom of self? So I'm going to land the plane and just give you three things. I'm going to fly through these. You choose it by having a different perspective. God, there's more going on. I don't understand the whole picture. I will choose to believe that if I knew what you knew, I would want what you want. Second, we know that we can grieve, which is an emotion, but not as people who do not have hope. Because God is weaving together, this is peace, weaving together the frayed edges of our life and our world to make it into a mosaic, a masterpiece. You don't have to like it along the way, but you can know that it's happening. And it can help you say, I'm going to lay my life down that I might find true life. And then finally, please don't miss this. Please don't miss this. Know, know that you stand in the place of divine love and goodness and God's favor over you. You will never choose God's kingdom unless you first are convinced of God's love.
So here's what I want to do. I'm going to play a song that caught my heart this week. It was a song that um, when I first became a follower of Jesus, I absolutely loved Rich Mullins. And I was on a run this week, uh, or last Friday. I was on a run last Friday, and I had this line from this song pop into my head. I don't know where you're leading me unless you've led me here where I'm lost enough to let myself be led. And I went, that's it. That's it. And I went back and I Googled it. What song is that? The song is called Hard to Get. It's a song about Gethsemane. But I think more than that, it's a song about God and it's a song about you and me. And here's the deal. As our sound team sort of cues that up, um, just a word. If you're in that moment, that season of Gethsemane, if you're saying to God, God, I'm sorrowful, I'm troubled, I'm frustrated. There's things going on inside of me that I don't know what to do with. I just want you to hear me say as clearly as I can, this is a safe place to name the darkness in your soul. It's there. Name it. Name it. But it's hard to live in Gethsemane. We live there until we name it. When we name it, we start to get free to say, God, I don't like this, but I'm going to move forward. Whatever forward means, I'm going there with you. That's what Jesus does. It's the way that this passage of Scripture ends. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. I hope this ministers to your soul. Let's just take a few moments and spend with Jesus. If you need somebody to pray with you, um, maybe you just... Ask the person right next to you, would you pray for me? You don't need to tell them what's going on. Just, I just, would you pray for me? If you need somebody to pray with you and you want to sneak up here, I'll, I'm gonna, I'll just sit up here while the song plays. And Tom, will you sit up here too? And if, if you'd like prayer, come on up. Rodney, you want to sit over there? Yeah.